The Profit Margin Written by Adam Argo Narrated by Bo Thomas He's my monster. I made him. Revolution time. Look, if you had one shot or one opportunity to seize everything you'd ever wanted in one moment, would you capture it or just let it slip? Yo, Eminem. Chapter 2. The Pitch One Year Earlier Clarissa, is there anything you'd like to say to Marissa? asked the host. Come on, Alex whispered to herself, grinding her jaw behind the editing board in the control room. They were shooting the season finale of Hypergamous Housewives, and the tension had been ratcheting up for weeks. Alex had just closed on her mortgage in Santa Monica, finally made it out of the valley and the only hope for a season two pickup hinged on some kind of blowout between the wives. Instead, the episode had fizzled into petty, passive-aggressive jabs and mundane banter. Hypergamous Housewives was Alex's baby. She'd produced all 13 episodes and personally edited half of them. She needed a good bar brawl and a cliffhanger, or she could kiss season two goodbye. All season, people have been tweeting that Clarissa should let Marissa have it for ruining her daughter's wedding. Marissa brought the house down in episode 8 with a drunken impromptu lap dance on the groom, and the reception turned into an all-out cage fight. It was just the kind of controversy Alex needed to keep people watching. The other housewives had paired off into camps, choosing sides between Clarissa or Marissa. The only one that remained neutral was Kayla, the perfect, pristine, ever-composed, dullest housewife on the show. Alex needed to get the wives riled up. For the final confrontation, she had strategically planted rumours on set that Marissa was talking shit behind Clarissa's back. Tensions were running high during the sit-down portion of the episode, but nobody seemed willing to address the elephant in the room. Alex had the host ask Marissa some prodding questions to get her to defend her behaviour at the wedding hoping this would provoke Clarissa. She directed the makeup artist to coax Marissa into feeling she deserved an apology from Clarissa for all the rumours about her. After laying the groundwork, the host posed the question that should have tipped off a frantic fistfight. I just want you to know, Clarissa said to Marissa, that I finally realise how much pain you must have been in when you got drunk at my daughter's wedding. And it wasn't fair of me to judge you as harshly as I did. Thank you, Clarissa, said Marissa, laying it on a little thick. That means the world to me. What? said Alex, fuming. She forgave her? What the fuck? What was she supposed to do with that? Uh, For weeks they had been hyping a volatile showdown. But how was Alex supposed to get ratings when the stars refused to engage in psychotic rivalries? That was her last hope. Alex had no clue how to salvage any controversy from a group of housewives that were willing to act like well-adjusted civil adults. It was just bad television. Pressing a button on the control panel, she spoke into the mic. Okay, let's take five. Camera's back to one. She's too comfortable, said a man standing by the door. Alex turned to look. 
A silhouetted figure leaned in the doorframe, backlit by a blaze of hot white sunlight. "'Who are you?' asked Alex. The man stepped into the dim light of the control room, revealing a freshly pressed grey suit and a face that had the cool charm and slick hair of a finalist from The Bachelorette. Striding across the floor to the panel, the stranger leaned over Davrick, the editor, and tapped a few keys. The video on the screen rewound to an earlier scene from the interview. He tapped another key, and the screen froze on a close-up of Kayla. "'You almost had her right there,' said the stranger. Alex adjusted her baseball cap and peered at the screen, then at the stranger. "'What the fuck are you doing on my set?' she looked at the production assistant. "'Rachel?' "'Michelle okayed him,' said Rachel, raising her hands as if at gunpoint. "'That's all I know.' "'Kayla's playing you,' said the stranger. "'You think you're running the show?' "'She is.' That lady's been playing every angle all season, so she looks like the good guy. But deep down, she's the most manipulative cock in the henhouse. This is my fucking show! No, it's not. Every time you shoot Kayla, she's either boring or too rehearsed. She stirs the other wives into a frenzy, but she always comes out like the saint. What you don't realize is she's keeping a secret that would blow up the entire group dynamic. How do you know that? asked Alex. She's telling me right there. The stranger gestured to the screen again. The paused image showed Kayla holding her wrist, her face wide open, deer in the headlights. Look at camera two at the same timestamp. Davrick rewound the camera two footage and pressed play. I feel like the luckiest woman to have such a thoughtful husband, said Marissa, as she adjusted the diamond bracelet on her wrist, admiring it. Pause it there, said the stranger. Davrick punched the space key and the shot freeze-framed on Marissa sitting next to her husband. Look at him, said the stranger. The husband sat frozen, biting his lip, looking off-screen. Frustrated, Alex adjusted her cap again and chewed her gun. Are you from the network? I'm going to do you a favor, said the stranger. All you need to do is call them back to the couches and keep one camera on Kayla. Start rolling before they sit down. The stranger strolled from the control room onto the stage floor. Alex looked at Rachel and Davrick. What the fuck is going on here? The host, husbands and housewives took their seats on the couches. The stranger glided across the studio and approached Kayla with a bizarre intensity. Let's roll this, said Alex over the headphones. Camera one, you stay on Kayla. The camera one lens dilated as it zoomed into an over-the-shoulder medium close-up of Kayla. The stranger's face was serious, curiously scanning her features, probing her like a prosecutor. Kayla glanced at the host for some kind of explanation. "'Excuse me,' said the stranger, as he took her wrist between his fingers. His eyebrows lifted with a sudden realization. Giving Kayla a knowing look, he subtly shook his head. The stranger crossed the rug to the opposite side of the couch, leaning into Marissa. He shielded the lav mic pinned to her blouse and whispered something in her ear. "'What's he saying?' asked Alex. "'Sound? Are we picking anything up?' The sound mixer shrugged and shook his head while pointing at his headphones. "'Camera two, push in on Marissa,' said Alex. Marissa's face dropped. Her otherwise baked complexion paled three shades, her eyes widening. 
As the stranger stood and swaggered away from the couches, Marissa's cheeks flushed deep red, her brow dropping like a bull, zeroing in on a matador. Hope you're rolling, said the stranger, crossing the studio to the control room. And we are live, said Alex over the speakers. The host sat up, looking into camera three. And we're back after a short break. Marissa, did you have something you wanted to... She looked at her husband. Where did you get this? She asked, holding her bracelet. A jewelry store, he said. What's wrong? Which one? Uh, one by my work. I don't remember the name. Marissa turned her serrated glare to Kayla. Did you used to have a bracelet like this? She asked. Kayla's I-just-shit-my-thong look said it all. Her eyes darted around the studio like a mouse cornered by a cat. She folded her arms, trying to hide her wrist. I know you're not about to lie to me. Marissa weaved her head back and forth like a snake recoiling for a strike. Her gestures increasingly exaggerated. I don't know what you're... Kayla cowered. All season she had played the cool hand, always the perfect wife, the confidant, the naive, sincere neighbor, the unimposing southern belle. The other wives took her for a benign presence on the show. Suddenly, Marissa was turning the tables. The bracelet! I found it in my husband's Corvette! Marissa launched from the couch across the rug and entangled her claws into Kayla's extensions before the host could register any motion. The set erupted into a Guernica-like field of manicured nails, hair extensions, out-of-season tans, and surreal prosthetically enhanced body parts as all five housewives leapt into the fray. A wild cacophony of sneers, screams, and cat-like howls blew the mic levels with a mad chorus of Fuck you, bitch! And I'm gonna kick your cunt! And that's my fucking man, bitch! As the blur of 1080 high-def chaos fluttered from every camera, the stranger entered the control room where Alex barked orders at the cameraman. The sound guy danced across the levels, trying to salvage some usable audio. Michelle Kimball, the line producer, strode from her office to watch the fight. What happened? she asked. Alex's face beamed with berserker's glee. Fucking Christmas, Michelle, she said, flipping the switcher from camera to camera. Fucking Christmas! Michelle regarded the stranger. Do you have something to do with this? She said, through a suspicious smirk. Just rolled in, said the stranger, shrugging. Looks like you got this handled, Alex, said Michelle, casting a flirtatious glance at the stranger. Care for some lunch, Mr. Knox? Oh, I could murder some Fra Diavolo, said Tommy Knox offering his elbow. A coquettish smile curled her lip as she took the stranger by the arm and the two disappeared into a white blaze of the exit door. Amid wild switching and cutting between cameras, Alex looked at Daverick, hustling across the keyboard. Was that Tommy Knox? asked Alex. Daverick paused for a moment. Holy shit! As in gender wars, Tommy Knox? Alex exhaled a long, bewildered breath. Who the fuck let that guy on the lot? A loud crash, underscored by two mad screams, burst from the set. Shooting her eyes to the screens, Alex barked into her headset. Get the blood! Camera two, get the blood! Religion, said Tommy. Religion? asked Michelle, surprised but sceptical. Tommy nodded. A smile spread like soft butter across his face. 
Miss Sally's was quiet, even for an early dinner. The candles flickered in warm halos on the white tablecloths. Soft Italian opera played in the background. The stage was set, and Tommy was ready to give a soul-rending performance for an audience of one. Michelle was the best line producer he had ever worked with. She was game for anything. She just had to see the numbers add up before she could sign off. Her deep brown eyes enchanted him. The diffuse candlelight gave her caramel complexion a saintly glow. Why would you want to make a reality show about religion? She asked. Not just a show. An actual new religion. From scratch. But you're an atheist, she said. He scoffed. I never said that. You don't believe in God. Exactly, said Tommy, breaking a breadstick in two. Atheists actively believe there is no God. I'm just not inclined one way or the other. I remain wholly impartial. Totally different. Crunch. He chewed the breadstick like a woodchipper. Tommy, that is an atheist, she said. Michelle was usually entertained by Tommy's promiscuous relationship with language, but she wasn't biting. He anticipated a hard sell. Dipping his breadstick in the Fra Diavolo sauce, he sopped it up before taking another bite. It doesn't matter what I believe, said Tommy. What matters is there's an audience. Give me some figures, said Michelle. I don't have the numbers yet. That's what I need you for. But look, Tommy took a solid gulp of the red, then launched into his spiel. Religions are melding quicker than the polar ice caps. The Catholics are so desperate to hold on to members, they're installing drive-through communion. The Mormons are hemorrhaging saints like their appendix burst. The Bible belts lost so many Baptists and Lutherans, they changed their name to the Bible drawstring. We're looking at the religious equivalent of a full-scale global meltdown, and the floodwaters are arising. All that tells me is that nobody's interested in religion, said Michelle. Tommy shoved a forkful of linguine and shrimp into his mouth and swallowed hard. That's exactly the mistake the preachers are making. All the atheist demagogues are high-fiving each other because they gave a few ignorant hick evangelists a wedgie in some YouTube debates. They're just taking credit for a paradigm shift that's happening spontaneously around the world. It's like every movement. The parade already started without them. They're just running to the front and pretending to lead. But nobody has been able to put their finger on exactly what is causing the evacuation. The Internet? The Internet's the catalyst, said Tommy, but not the cause. Same thing, said Michelle. Stimulus, catalyst, cause, those are called synonyms. You'll find them in a thesaurus. She wasn't holding back on the sarcasm. I love it when your claws come out, said Tommy. A catalyst is a substance that increases the rate of a chemical reaction. It facilitates it, but it's not the actual reaction. The Internet is an accelerant to the religious evacuation, but it didn't cause it. You might want to check your history, said Michelle. The Internet's just a faster printing press. It's the same mechanism that launched the Reformation. History's written by assholes who think their shit don't stink, said Tommy. Don't confuse the vehicle for the driver. Okay, Darwin, in the world of Tommy Knox, what's causing the evacuation? Glad you asked, Tommy grinned pompously. Michelle rolled her eyes as her half-smile carved a dimple into her cheek. Tommy loved this. Religion has been misdiagnosed, said Tommy. Everyone blames religion for all the conflicts in the world. 
They think we can just remove it from our brain like a tumor. But they don't understand what it really is. They think it's just a superstitious belief in supernatural gods. That's not even close. The god stuff is just the way we internalize power dynamics. But the core of religion is something deceptively simple. He took another sip of wine, sloshing it between his cheeks. He wanted the anticipation to linger. Religion is a strategy for survival. It's that simple, he said. It's the way we internalize the world around us, like the digestive tract of the mind. Science is the method of using reason, logic, and observation to form a model of the universe. It's the conscious mind at work, but religion is how we feel about that model. It's the map of the sacred and profane. Information isn't truly part of our mental process until it has engaged our emotions. Science provides units of information, but it's not until we've drawn a relationship between ourselves and the information that we find meaning. Science describes the events. Religion tells the story. The abstractions weren't persuading Michelle. She listened with a furrowed brow as she rearranged the vegetables on her plate. A man will die in a car accident in the next 30 seconds, said Tommy. That's information. The man happens to be your brother, and he's going to veer the car off the road to avoid hitting a school bus. Now it means something. That is religion. Sounds like you're just moving the goalposts, she said. I'm not touching the goalposts, Tommy resisted. I'm claiming the field. If that's true, why is religion disappearing? It's not. Religion doesn't disappear. Everyone is religious. It's just a function of the mind. You don't leave religion. You just reject narratives when they fail to resonate with you. The atheists claim religion is just a virus of the mind. That's a rhetorical maneuver to try to distinguish themselves from church folks. It's not a virus. It's the story that gives us meaning, the narrative by which we measure the value of our lives. What's really happening is the institutions and old narratives are failing to give meaning to our internal map. Everyone is looking for a new narrative. Tommy pulled the napkin from his lap and wiped his mouth, then took a long, slow sip, finishing the red. Michelle's warm eyes squinted to half-moons, and she wrinkled her nose, resisting the temptation to give in. And you think a reality show can offer all that? she asked. Tommy beamed a pompous grin. It's the perfect medium. In the old days, rituals were designed to reinforce narratives through repetition. That's what a reality show is. It's a story. Now that we can make it interactive, it becomes a ritual. Talk to me about format, said Michelle. It's a competition, serialized with an arc. Like American Idol? Yeah, but the most important part is what's happening off stage, between the episodes. We'll have a social media site where people can chat about the show. We'll use that to create a counter story that contradicts the one they see on stage. We need to disrupt the audience's expectations. Give them a sense that something huge is coming, something that's going to affect the entire world. What is it? asked Michelle, now completely baited. I have no idea, said Tommy, chuckling. The important thing is to present a mystery behind the scenes. Release viral videos, interrupt the format of the show. Have contestants suddenly disappear without explanation. 
do things to get people thinking there's some deception going on, some secret we're protecting. It'll get people combing through every detail and arguing about its meaning. Like a conspiracy theory, she said. Exactly. Conspiracy theory is the machine of modern mythology. Once we get people suspicious that there's some kind of invisible hand controlling the show, audiences will start to create their own narratives. And that's how we'll reel them in. That's what makes the social media more important than the show. It'll change the way people watch and the way they think of religion. It was the last comment that connected the dots for Michelle. She gave him the look. He already knew he didn't want to hear the next words out of her mouth. Is this about your father? she asked. Tommy had to fight the impulse to roll his eyes and scoff. It's about making something happen. I've been in producer's jail for long enough. I'm on to something big with this one. And I'm ready to come out swinging. She knew she struck a nerve. Nothing makes me happier than seeing you excited for a new project, she said. I just want to make sure it's coming from a good place. I don't want to see another gender wars meltdown. There was no way to see that coming, said Tommy, curbing his frustration. This time, it's different. You talked to Marty about this yet? She asked. We're meeting at the Red Cow at five, said Tommy. But you know you're my gatekeeper. He smiled, as if asking permission. Michelle took the last bite of her salmon and pressed the wine glass to her lips, her eyes swimming through calculations like a mystic. She took a sip, then said, We're going to need two million for the pilot. She was on board. Smiling, Tommy touched her freckled cheek, then kissed it. There's the girl I married. Facebook for dogs, said Marty Kovacs, his hands held up, forming brackets, his eyes glistening with enthusiasm, teetering on madness. The fuck are you talking about? said Tommy, leaning back against the curved bench. I'm telling you, it's going to be huge, Marty pressed on, brushing back the last hairs of his otherwise bold scalp. Look, when dogs drink, they digest water through their systems. Whatever emotional state they're in, their body releases hormones and chemicals into the bladder and they have to release it. Their piss is a literal chemical cocktail of their emotional state. When they take a leak, not only are they marking their territory, they're literally expressing themselves in the piss. Another dog comes along and smells and they're like, gee, smells like Fido's pretty stressed out or Spot's been getting a lot of leg hump time. It's the exact same impulse humans have when they're reading their friend's Facebook post. So you're saying, said Tommy, a dog taking a piss on a tree is posting its feelings. Exactly. Marty was getting giddier by the minute. Every time I take out Scout, she can't wait to go sniff all the trees on the block. She's like a coke fiend on a porn set, sniffing the shit out of anything that got peed on by other dogs. 75% of all internet activity is browsing Facebook. Is that true? It sounds true, said Marty. I think I read it somewhere. Anyway, the reason why Facebook is successful is because it taps into our primal need to belong to something, to connect with each other. And we're all virtually smelling each other's asses. We just do it with a keyboard. Dogs have the same instinct. I'm working with this web guy out of Germany to develop a way to get dog piss online. This thing is going to be huge. Bitch book? I'm thinking PopNet said Marty. Dogster? Tommy threw in. Oh, that's good, said Marty. He grabbed a napkin and began to write. What about 
pound debate. Pretty sure that already exists, said Tommy, but I don't think it has anything to do with dogs. Doggy style, Marty shouted. Now we're approaching the descent, said Tommy. Anyway, we'll figure out the name later. What do you think? I think you're on to something, boyo. A waiter approached. What can I get for you two? He asked. Marty began. What's on tap? Actually, why don't you line us up with a round of Johnny Walkers, said Tommy, and bring the bottle. Sounds like a party, said the waiter, stuffing the notepad into his apron, moseying away. What are we celebrating? asked Marty, pleasantly surprised. I'm coming out of retirement. Well, twist my nipple. You ready to start fielding offers? I know a producer would kill to take you on. You'd have to start as a consultant, but no offers, said Tommy. I want to captain my own ship. Marty tried to maintain his smile, despite the enthusiasm draining from his face. I know what you're thinking. Tommy, I got a show so fucking Molotov, the networks will be licking my taint to get a meeting. Tommy, you're the smartest guy I know, but this is the one. Marty, this is my Moby Dick, my Strait of Magellan. This is the reason I was put on this earth. I'm ready to crawl over glass for this one. I believe you, buddy, I do, said Marty. This could be the second coming of Christ, but I couldn't get a cold pitch for you if my liver depended on it. Not yet. None of the networks will take a sit-down, not with you as the captain. What if it is the second coming? asked Tommy, with an earnestness that troubled Marty. I could get Jesus in the room, but not with you attached, said Marty, shrugging his shoulders and spreading his small palms as if offering a cup of bitter truth. The only way you're going to sit down is by jumping on another crew. Show the networks you're a team player and you'll play by the rules. Eventually they'll soften up. I can't put in five years sucking cock on hack shows. This ship is going to sail with or without me. But without me, it'll sink. Look, said Marty, no one is more charmed by your lone wolf mystique than I am. But after gender wars blew up, Marty paused. Tommy, most networks have a scorched effigy of you in their lobbies as a warning to other producers. You're a fucking cautionary tale, my friend. The waiter returned, slid two shot glasses on the table, and opened the bottle. I'll pour, thanks, said Tommy, snatching the bottle and gushing a generous dose into the glasses. Look, I know I've got a scarlet letter on my chest. You let me worry about breaking out of producer jail. I just need to know if you're on board. I'm on board, said Marty. It's just, it's not a good time to launch. Good. That's all I need to know, said Tommy. Remember Shannon Parsons? Marty rolled his eyes around his memory. Was she the second AD on Gender Wars? Started out as a set PA, worked her way up to first AD, said Tommy. Last year she got picked up as a junior development exec at UBS. I gave her her first job, and she feels like she owes me a favor. She's setting up a sit-down with her seniors to hear the pitch. UBS? Marty chuckled. I'm surprised they'd let you in the building. Do they know they're meeting with you? asked Marty. Tommy knocked back a shot and held down a belch. Hit it, he said to Marty, tapping the shot glass. Noticing he was avoiding his question, Marty felt his stomach drop. Tommy, do they know they're meeting with you? Marty repeated, this time without the chuckle. I might have said she was setting up the pitch with you. What the fuck? 
I know, said Tommy. It's a long shot. Do you know what kind of position that puts me in? For Christ's sake, not to mention the girl, what's her name? Shannon. She'll get fired for this, you know. She'll get your stink all over her reputation. No one will touch her. After they hear my pitch, they'll make her a senior. Tommy! What in the name of high holy fuck? Seriously, said Marty. UBS was the one place that would take a meeting with me. I was holding on to that one. You can't just set up a meeting using my name. Technically, that's not true, because I did, said Tommy. But let's not lose focus here. This is my Moby. Fuck you, Moby, and fuck your dick. You can't throw around my name just because you shit yours down the drain. Marty shoved the table as he stood up. He grabbed the shot glass and knocked it back, then stormed out the back door. Sitting against the padded booth, Tommy sighed. He muttered to himself as he drank. Who shits in a drain? The waiter approached. Want me to clear the glass? He's coming back, said Tommy. The waiter withdrew, and Tommy poured himself another. Two shots later, Marty returned through the front door of the bar, looking embarrassed and defeated. He slumped into the booth, staring at the two full shot glasses. Let's hear it, said Marty. Tommy smiled his wicked smile, lifting his shot glass to a toast. Marty shook his head, resigned to the current Tommy had set in motion. They clinked the glass and threw back the shots. I'm going to start a new religion. Marty's face twisted into crooked question mark. Religion? But you're an atheist. I'm more of a practicing agnostic, said Tommy. The United Broadcast Systems headquarters, based in Santa Monica, sprung from the corner of Colorado and Cloverfield like a sleek, modern Aztec temple, shrouded in palm trees and mirrored windows. Marty entered the conference room overlooking the sprawl of semi-urban beach town, sweating like a prisoner awaiting execution. A panel of senior development executives lined the horseshoe conference table, a firing squad training their sights. Among them sat the chief executive officer, Queen Bitch Victoria Archibald. She'd killed more careers than the Great Depression. Thanks for taking the time to meet with me, said Marty. Shannon tells us you have quite the show you want to pitch, said Archibald. We're ready to be amazed. How many of you would like to go back in time and get a second chance, said Marty. A second chance at first love. A second chance to prove yourself at your first job. A second chance to be the person you wish you could have been. Marty scanned the room, looking for the slightest glint of connection. Nothing but blank stares. We can't all get a second chance, but sometimes we get an opportunity to give one. Ladies and gentlemen, I present you such an opportunity. Twisting the knob, Marty opened the door and Tommy glided into the room. How are you doing, everybody? said Tommy. Victoria, effervescent as ever. Josh, keeping up the racquetball, I see. Tommy noticed an exec he didn't recognize. He leaned in and shook her hand. I don't know you yet. I'm Tommy. Tommy Knox. They say opportunity only knocks once, but Tommy knocks until you answer. The fuck is going on here, Marty? asked Archibald. To be fair, said Tommy, this wasn't Marty's idea. I know I'm the last person you want to see here, but frankly, I'm the exact person you need. What are you talking about? asked Archibald. UBS is hurting, Tommy continued. 
fading stock prices, and three straight quarters in the red. Everyone is cutting cable like it's a rite of passage, and UBS hasn't been able to adapt to successful integrated platform into online streaming. You're so far behind the curve, you make Gutenberg look innovative. That's not true. We have several online properties, said Josh. MonoQuest, said Tommy, incredulous. Husband Roulette? My big, fat, fill-in-the-blank wedding? Those apps have less traffic than an abortion clinic in Utah. That's not a platform. It's a diving board into an empty pool. Cable is gone, and with all of your edgy programming, your only hope is that somebody wanders in here with a fully formed property so timely, so connected, so relevant, audiences will tap into it like it's an IV. A smile blazed across his face. Well, you're in luck, because I happen to be your guy. I don't think you're in any position to criticize our programming, said Josh. Wrong. I'm the only one in the position to criticize, said Tommy. You know why? In reality entertainment, I'm the only person to be completely wrong. To fail so hard, my name is now a verb for going down in flames. Don't nax this up, said Marty. Thank you, Marty, said Tommy. Don't you think that comes with a few lessons? Some perspective? Archibald looked at the other execs, then turned her frigid leer back to Tommy. You've got five minutes. If this doesn't have a climax better than my vibrator, I'll have you arrested for trespassing. That's more than enough time, said Tommy, clicking the button on the remote control. The conference room lights dimmed as the automatic shades drew across the panoramic windows. The widescreen television lit up with images of the earth spinning gracefully through the void of space. Tommy stepped into the middle of the room, in the centre of the horseshoe conference table. The world is changing, said Tommy as the earth, backlit by a rising sun, projected onto the screen behind him. You feel it, don't you? Tommy looked around the table, making deliberate eye contact with each exec in the room. It's like the drop in barometric pressure from a coming storm. Beneath the rumbling tides of commuter traffic, below the clack of a million keyboards and mouse clicks, behind the screens of a million cell phones and webcams, the world is waking to an age it has never seen. Pressing the button on his clicker, a network of lights spun across the animated globe in a vast web of connectivity. For the first time in history, it's not family or geography or even race that defines our communities, but ideas. Ideas are the new landscape of identity. Ideologies are the new borders a mother in Kinshasa chats with a housewife in Chile about the Kardashians. An Israeli DJ chats with a Palestinian musician about how dubstep ruined the club scene. A man in Stockholm falls in love with a woman in Haiti without ever meeting face to face. Walls around nationality, class, and gender are all collapsing as a vast network of consciousness expands into every crevice, apartment, hut and home in the world. It's an age where no one should ever have to feel alone. And yet, we do. Tommy clicked the remote. A montage of videos projected across the screen, showing people wandering, alienated in a crowd, in a park, a bustling city street. What is every man, woman, and child looking for when they log on to Facebook at two in the morning? Hope. 
hope that there's someone else who feels as alone as they do. There is an epidemic of loneliness. Three in five Americans say they are lonelier now than 10 years ago. The average person spends 78% of their online viewing watching other people just having conversations. The video transitioned to a time-lapse of a desert scene fading from a passing day to the galactic sea of stars rotating through the night. When we lived off the savannah in hunter-gatherer tribes, we all looked to the sun as a source of life and orientation. It was a common celestial object on which to fix our gaze and wonder. We depended on each other for survival, but we looked to the heavens for meaning. When we were separated by shadows, we all looked to the moon and knew somehow we weren't alone. This was the birth of religion. Not a system of beliefs, but a sense of awe, a sense of purpose, a sense of belonging to something greater than ourselves. The feeling that it all means something. Today is no different. We're looking for that common celestial object on which to fix our gaze. Tommy crossed the room as he talked, gesturing at the video presenting a series of churches juxtaposed with trucking shots of the Large Hadron Collider at CERN and other massive laboratories. With the age of science and reason, we bought into one huge misconception. We thought religion was about truth and allowed science to take its place. We did everything we could to stifle the part of our nature that makes us human, that gives us meaning. We traded our prophets for scientists, our shamans for researchers, our rituals for consumption. The world is abandoning religious institutions because their narratives have failed to describe the landscape of ideologies we're all facing. However, they are not abandoning religion. America is seeking out a new narrative that reflects our conflicts, that addresses the concerns we all feel. Technology has given us the ability to read each other's minds, to connect across the country. And what we have learned is that deep down, we all feel a little broken, a little lost, misunderstood, and often alone. The video showed a man standing shirtless on an island staring out to sea as a ship sailed by in the distance. What we want, what we desperately need, is a kind face, a warm smile, a gentle heart we can look to, to give us meaning, to give us something bigger than ourselves. We are searching for some transcendent figure to rip our hearts open and say it's all going to be okay, it's all worth it. The video cycled through a series of photographs and footage of televangelists, yogis, Buddhist monks, priests and ministers from all religions and denominations. In the ancient days, warriors would rub oil on their shields to keep them supple for battle. The Hebrew word for this was mashiach, to smear. When a soldier was victorious in battle, they would lift him on the shield as a leader, a hero, a king, an exalted object on which to fix their gaze. This is where we get the concept of the anointed, the chosen one, a messiah. Someone around which the tribe invested its hopes. 
a loop of a tattered American flag drifting in the wind, silhouetted by a sunset played on the screen. America has lost faith in heroes, in leaders, in authority. Across this country there is a culture war raging online and in everyone's heart. I want to claim the battlefield. I want to give America someone to believe in. I want to tap into our tribal impulse to belong. I want to shake up all their cynical certainty and make them question everything they believe in. I want to give them the title lit up the screen. An American Messiah. A sizzle reel showing footage from cataclysmic films played, mingled with footage of street preachers and reality show talent contests. Each week, contestants from around the country will perform miracles and acts of God, preach and prophecy. The audience will decide who will be the chosen one. American Messiah is an art competition reality show where the contestants battle for the souls, hearts, and loyalty of America. Audiences register accounts on a social media site to debate which contestant has the best performance, then vote in a seamless integration of live broadcasts with online interaction. We've been saturated with American idols. It's time for an American Messiah. Tommy stood with his arms folded, leaning against the wall with a broad, satisfied smile. Archibald sat up from her seat, staring at Tommy her face just as stoic and indecipherable as before. The development execs all turned to her as the silence compressed the room like a pressure chamber. Leaning forward, she pressed the intercom button on the tabletop unit. Samantha? Get me security. Fuck that bitch, said Michelle. If she doesn't know a good idea when she sees it, she deserves to go down with the network. Tommy, Michelle, and Marty sat at the benches of Tito's Tacos beneath the cool shade of the 405 overpass. I think she dug it, said Tommy. She had us ejected, said Marty. Ejected, said Tommy, not arrested. So what's next, said Michelle. That was the last round I had in the chamber, said Tommy. You guys got a fold-out couch, Marty mourned. Don't be so melodramatic, said Tommy. Tommy's phone rang. Hello? Tommy Knox, please, said a pinched voice on the other end. Speaking. My name is Samantha, Victoria Archibald's assistant. As in just booted me out of the building, that Victoria Archibald? Tommy directed this to Marty, who immediately began to schwitz. She'd like to meet with you. You can tell her I'm booked for the next few days, said Tommy. I'm meeting with TLC and AMC. But I might have time to Skype next week. Marty's face turned a purple crimson as the panic nearly strangled him. She'd like to meet today, said Samantha. Mm, definitely can't squeeze her in today, said Tommy. Tell you what, I'll give her a call when I get back from Milan at the first of the month. Gotta go, Tommy hung up the phone. What the fuck are you doing? Marty exploded. Tommy, said Michelle. Take it easy, said Tommy. She'll call back. No one decides they want to sign a deal in two hours unless they're desperate. If it were a pass, they'd take two weeks to tell us. If she wants to meet today, it's good news, but we can't afford to look eager, not after she kicked us to the curb. We're passionate, not eager. 
All three looked at Tommy's phone while holding their collective breath. She's not calling, said Michelle. Just call her back and take the meeting, said Marty. Have a little faith, said Tommy. After a beat, he placed the phone on the table. Still, all six eyes remained glued to the screen. Nothing. I'm going to get another taco, said Tommy. Anybody else want one? Bullshit, said Marty. You're not going anywhere until that phone rings again. Tommy looked around at the other patrons shoving tacos into their faces. He felt the knot in his stomach form another loop, then pull tighter. Ring! Marty nearly jumped. Tommy had to stop him from grabbing the phone. What are you doing? Marty belted. Ring! Answer it, said Michelle. He raised his hands. Passionate, not eager. Ring! Tommy casually lifted the phone, sliding his finger across the screen, then pressed it to his ear. This is Tommy. Marty and Michelle watched anxiously as Tommy's expression fell. Shit, said Tommy. I missed it. Call her back, said Marty. The number's blocked. Shit, said Tommy. The slider hung up on her. Ring! This time Tommy didn't hesitate. Hello, said Tommy eagerly. He cleared his throat, then chilled his anxiety. Hello, your GPS says you're at Tito's Tacos, said Samantha over the phone. A car will be arriving for you shortly. Click. How did you get my... Tommy looked at his phone. Hello? What did they say? said Marty, on the verge of a meltdown. They're sending a car. A car? said Michelle. What for? Moments later, a long black boat of a Cadillac drove up to the curb in front of Tito's Tacos. The driver climbed from the car and opened the back door. Mr. Knox, said the driver. Tommy paused as he hoisted his last taco to his mouth. He looked at Marty and Michelle. Get over there, Marty insisted. Tommy sunk his teeth into the crisp taco as he approached the car. He climbed into the back seat and the driver closed the door. Inside, Tommy found himself face to face with Victoria Archibald. Her take-no-bullshit look chiseled like marble into her unimpressed face. Tommy chewed his taco and swallowed hard. Want a bite? asked Tommy. You're a cunt, Tommy, said Archibald. Uh... Not just an arbitrary cunt, but a specific kind of rare cunt that only comes around every few hundred years to remind us what we're trying to overcome. You are the dross, the fucking sludge from which mankind clawed its way to freedom and set fire to the swamp that birthed you. If there's any doubt in your mind that I have anything more than disdain for you, kill it now. Any hope that I might in some way respect, condone, or even appreciate what the fuck you are, drown it. What I have to say to you, let it be couched within this parenthesis. You are a fucking cunt. Tommy smiled and feigned a mildly offended look. So, no hug, said Tommy. A deep storm raged beneath her eyes. But Archibald contained it with a professional sort of repression that was sure to metastasize into a curdling ball of cancer buried somewhere in her gut. She took a deep breath and calmed the fires before she spoke another word. We want to pick up American Messiah, she said. Yes! Tommy made a fist and shook it like a bowler who nailed every last redneck pin. I wouldn't celebrate yet, she said, pulling a sheet of paper from a folder resting on the seat behind her. Your one sheet estimated a budget of 2.5 million for the pilot. We're only going to give you one. One what? One million. That's not even half, said Tommy. You mean an option, right? One million for the entire budget. You can either make that work or find more financing. 
Tommy laughed, expecting Archibald to crack. She didn't. Is UBS really that bad off? he asked. You find the remaining financing. We shoot it. If it tests well, we'll greedlight the first season and back the entire thing. You're going to reimburse me for the budget? said Tommy incredulously. If it tests well. What the fuck kind of Ponzi? Sounds like you're not very confident you can pull it off, said Archibald. I can build the engine, but you stripped off the wheels, said Tommy. We want your skin in the game. You're asking UBS to go out on a limb, picking up a show from the producer of the cultural abortion Gender Wars. We want to make sure you're out there sitting right next to us. If it tests well, you've lost nothing. If it doesn't, well... I can go fuck myself, said Tommy. You can go fuck yourself now, but get the 1.5 and we can play ball. Tommy ran through the contingencies. She knew what she was doing. She knew he was cornered, without options. He looked at her, then cracked a smile. I was right about UBS, said Tommy. Your online integration plan's flopped, hasn't it? Archibald tapped the glass portion to the front seat. Henry, she said, then looked at Tommy again. I'll need your answer by Thursday. The back door opened. Tommy waited for a moment, trying to read her impenetrable expression. I knew you liked my show, Tommy gloated, then climbed out. As the Cadillac drove away, Tommy buttoned his jacket. Michelle and Marty approached with wide, curious eyes. Tommy adjusted his expression to look disappointed. Well, Marty demanded, this is no time for suspense. What did she say? Tommy looked at Michelle with the eyes of a wounded pup. They're picking us up, said Tommy. A smile beamed from his face. I fucking know it, Marty pouted. Wait, what? They're picking us up? Michelle squealed, throwing her arms around Tommy. Tommy drank in her kiss and hugged her. Get in line, Shelley, said Marty. I'm going to French your son of a bitch husband so deep it'll tickle his anus. Marty threw his arms around Michelle and Tommy and kissed both their cheeks. Tommy broke for a second. Either one of you got 1.5 mil on you? On the next episode of The Profit Margin... You've never dealt with these kinds of people before, Tommy. They don't take late payments. They take fingers. One of the goons ambled into the office, wiping blood from his hands with his handkerchief. Tommy gulped and adjusted his posture. Marty downed another swig. Gentlemen, said Vitrosky. Allow me to introduce you to my number one, Aegeus. Tommy and Marty nodded and smiled. Aegeus grunted. Tommy and Marty looked at each other, silently weighing their chances of making it out of the warehouse alive. The full audiobook of The Profit Margin is available now at cinematocore.com.